This morning, I want to look at a piece of the mission and movement of the church. As you know, we're moving in October uh, toward our missions month, renewing our focus on the mission and movement of the church. And I don't want to take for granted that you know what those pieces are and how they come together. I want to, it may seem self-serving, but it's not. I want to take a moment this morning to talk about, to preach about preaching. Yep. Second Timothy chapter four, open your Bibles with me, please. Or turn in your smart device or whatever it is you may have. I want to read into your hearing uh, verses one through five this morning. When you got it, say, I got it. If you don't have it, just turn to the screen so you can see it there. All right. This is how it reads. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Look at these three words that open this verse. Let's say them together. What does it say? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Y'all don't believe this, but I'm going to read it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In these verses, Paul charges Timothy to be faithful to his call to preach the word and to let the word do what the word's going to do. The word will draw some, it will drive some. It will hurt your feelings some Sundays and it'll console your broken heart some Sundays. But Paul tells Timothy, let that word do what it's supposed to do. This morning, I want to tag this text in our exchange let the word do the work. You may be seated. Let's talk together. Natalie. Let's do, let's do just let the word do the work. Turn to your neighbor. Help me out because I don't know if y'all going to talk back to me today. Eight o'clock was so rude and insensitive to me this morning that I almost decided not to come back to preach at eight o'clock for the rest of the year. And so I don't know if y'all going to treat me the same way, but I want y'all to turn to your neighbor and tell a neighbor, let the word do the work. Will you pray with me, please? Bow your heads and close your eyes. Our Father and our God, we do thank you and praise you for this privilege. I thank you for the privilege I have to preach your word and that I get to stand here in this spot just about every Sunday and preach to these your people. It's a joy for me. And I pray today that it will be a joy for your people to gladly receive your word, not the ideas of mere men, but the truth you've communicated to humanity for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> On November 7, 1935, the Royal National Institute for the Blind in Great Britain accomplished a feat 
that in many cases changed the world for a growing population. Britain's visually impaired community, some of whom had grown up with eyesight and able to read, but at this point in their lives were no longer able to read, because they were blind, they held out the hope that one day they would be able to enjoy the great works of prolific authors again. Not to wait for it to come out on Braille, but when the work itself was produced, that they would be able to enjoy that word. The challenge is that they could not see. And so the new sweeping works of literature were not printed in Braille, and many of them that they wanted to read were not available in those raised dots that they could rub their fingers across. And so after hearing of the 1926 release of Agatha Christie's book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, a visually impaired citizen made a strange plea to the Royal National Institute for the Blind. It came in the fashion of a question. And the question was, can you make the book talk? On November 7, 1935, the Royal National Institute for the Blind accomplished what had never been done before. With the advent of the new gramophone machine, they were able to take Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd and John Conrad's Typhoon and record them on LPs, 25 minutes on each side, and there they made the book talk. I find in this question, can you make the book talk, a kind of query from every age. In life, people have been desperate to hear from God. They have not always articulated their desperation in high and holy ways. They have tried to hear the consolation of God's voice through the material and medicating substances of our world. Hoping to arrive at peace, they have searched for the tone of his tongue in painful places. Looking for the voice that would satisfy their souls, they have financed their search for significance with payments too large for human expense. Only to discover that God had already spoken in a book they could not understand. The problem is that humanity is often too blind to read it plainly. Too sightless to see its overtures of God's love on printed page too undiscerning to hear the modulation of God's love for them and passion for them with ink on a page. And so the world too has asked like the blind in Great Britain, can you make the book talk? That's what I've been giving my life to for 20 years this year, August 16, 2018, trying to fulfill this command to make the book talk. It is the clarion call of Timothy received by Paul to make this book talk. It is the primary motivation for the work we do on Sunday morning that this book which others can read and not understand, which some do not care to read, is actually the lifeblood of the church and it needs to be explained. 
No, better, it needs to be proclaimed. To preach the word is what Paul tells Timothy. And for every Sunday that I've been your pastor, it has been my delightful charge and duty to come to this sacred space every week and to make the book talk. To preach the word, whether y'all look at me like you looking at me right now, whether you sleep on me like some of you sleeping on me right now, or whether you enjoy what is being said, it's been my job to come to this pulpit every week and to make the book talk. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do, to preach the word in his closing words on this second epistle to Timothy. It turns out that these would be the last words penned by the ancient apostle. He was headed for death row. And you can sense almost in the repetition of the repeated imperatives, the urgency of Paul's last words. Some nine imperatives occur within five verses alone. He's writing like a dying man. He is convinced that the mission and the movement of the church has to continue, that it must live beyond him so that his young charge, his young protege has to pick it up and to run with it. And he doesn't want to settle just for a nod from Timothy. He wants a commitment from Timothy. He wants Timothy to convey himself the urgency and potency of the pulpit because Paul knows that if the pulpit is lax, if the preacher is lazy, if the pulpit is unconvinced, if the preacher is loose in his living, and even worse, loose in his teaching, then the gravitational forces of heresy, that false teaching in our world, and cultural drift will lean in and make the church irrelevant. Y'all mind if I preach this morning? The book is relevant, but when the preacher doesn't preach the book, the church becomes irrelevant. God has spoken, but when the preacher doesn't say what God has already said, the world will not hear God's voice from the pulpit. So regardless of what y'all think I'm supposed to do on Sunday morning, I'm clear on my job description. It's my job to show up every Sunday and to open my mouth and say, thus saith the Lord. Even if when I say don't make you want to show up the next Sunday, that's all right. It's my job to preach the word because if I don't, culture will push in on the church. The church will lose its moral authority and its prophetic voice. So Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. I know you think that there are other things I'm supposed to do. <laughs> there are other things you come to church for. But the reality is, as Paul will argue in a moment, that this is the primary thing that we come to get on Sunday morning. If the music is great, great. If it's not great, let the word go forth. If the folk who stand at the doors are nice, great. If they mean as hell, and I mean that theologically, great. Let us get in and let the word go forth. Because if the word goes forth, somebody might get saved. If, if the word goes forth, somebody's marriage might come back together. 
If the word goes forth, the hopeless will find hope again. If the word goes forth, folk who've laughed at God will start to walk with God. Y'all not listening to me, but I'm preaching the story of folks sitting in this sanctuary. And I wish somebody would testify. You didn't plan on joining church. You didn't plan on walking with God. But you showed up one Sunday and the preacher fooled around and preached the word of God. And God grabbed you by your collar. Got your life together. I'm trying to tell y'all, this is the admonition. Preach the word. Now, it's striking to me <laughs> that verse 1 of chapter 4 should fall on the heels of verse 17 of chapter 3. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of humorous because you do know that when the Bible was first written, there were no chapters and verses. In fact, some would argue that the chapter and verse divisions are rather arbitrary. So when you read the Bible, you always want to read what comes before and what goes after it so as to catch the flow of the thought. And what you read at the end of chapter 3 is probably one of the greatest statements about the self-attesting witness of Scripture. It is that all Scripture is inspired by God. Man, I didn't plan on going here, but I need to. You know that word inspired means? It, it's theonoustros. It means breathe out of the nostrils of God. That, that it was written by the pen of human beings, but it came from the mind of God. That God, by his spirit, put the words on the writer's mouth and moved his hand so that when he wrote, he was not writing the words of men, but it turns out he was writing the word of God. It's God breathed. Can I preach the way I feel it? I'm going to preach the way I feel it regardless of y'all today anyway. There are times in life we were up in the mountains for a little while. People lose air. I got a hold of one of these. They, and when you go skiing, they got these things. You can buy a little oxygen tank, a little thing. You put it in your mouth, you spray it, and it... Because you could go so high that you lose oxygen and start to get delirious. And what they have discovered is that they could give you sufficient oxygen so that you could handle altitude. Y'all ain't ready. Life will take you to some places where the air is so thin that you cannot hang. Stand by the grave of a loved one and see, breathing ain't easy when you fall upon such. Turn out and watch your kid make some decision that you raised them not to make. And there will come a time where you need air that will help you handle the altitude. It's God. Breathe. And when you breathe it in, he will give you the power to handle life wherever you are. All scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. I didn't even plan on going here. Thank you, Holy Ghost. It, it's profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Man, listen, the word of God is completely reliable for your ministry. It's the only thing that gives you effectiveness and competency in ministry. See, you don't want a pastor, maybe you do, but you don't want a pastor who's just a good businessman, can organize the finances of the church, can remodel and renew. You don't want a pastor who's a good politician, who can work between the factions of the church and democratically solve problems within the fellowship. You, you don't want a pastor who is a entertainer, who can stand up on Sunday and flip tricks and you leave going ooh and ah. What you want 
is a pastor or a preacher who believes that this is the very word of God and leans on the book and stands up every Sunday and says, this is what the book has to say. Are y'all in here with me today? This is what Paul is telling Timothy. The word of God is completely reliable. It is what gives you competency and effectiveness in ministry. And now, when you get to the first verse of chapter 4, Paul turns the corner to say that the scriptures are not meant merely to be read. They are not meant to be debated. That, that the scriptures are not meant to be talked around at your discipleship hour or growth group. But the scriptures fundamentally are meant to be preached. And, and, and so what he says to Timothy is, preach, man. If you don't do nothing else, preach. If you don't feel like it, preach. If you do feel like it, preach. If they like you when you're done, preach. If they don't like you when you're done, preach. Because the world is in desperate need for the proclamation of the book. This is a strangely solemn assignment, but it marks the desperate need of the world and of the church. I, I want to suggest to you, friends, that preaching is God's idea. And it's his method to build the saints and to identify the ain'ts. I, I know that ain't, that ain't like a student, you know, that kind of, but it's the best I could come up with. All right, so enjoy it today. Not everybody who come to church is a saint. And not everybody who come is trying to be, come, a saint. In fact, there are folk in church who are not only far from God, they okay being far from God. But the longer you sit here like that and this book come after you, it's going to show you who you are. It's, it's going to show you if you are actually a child of God or if you faking it with Sunday morning clothes. Preach. This, 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 this text in essence says, you need preaching. I didn't talk too long already. Let me give you these movements and I'm in my seat. I want to discover a bit about the foundation of Christian preaching because you need to know why we do what we do. I want to look a bit at, at, at the function of Christian preaching here. And then, I, I don't want to depress you, but I, I do want to, before we're done, read through Paul's words on the fate of Christian preaching. That it ain't going to hit everybody the same way. Listen to Paul as he says here, as he describes the foundation, our motivation for preaching. He says in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. This, friends, is a gravely serious moment. Paul is about to die, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm issuing you an oath under oath. This is a commitment that I need you to make based upon the commitment that has been made to you. Y'all know people make commitments in all kinds of strange ways, don't you? And sometimes not so strange. I, I made a commitment to Kiersey. Done my best to keep it. She's done her best to keep it. We stood up in front of all of our loved ones and friends and we promised, you know how, how people do. Uh, Tristan, you're gonna do this, uh, you people do this all the time, you know, for better, for worse. Richer for poor, sickness and in hell, till death do, do us part. You have no idea what you're saying, but you're just so happy that you're standing there 
and the moment has come, and you're going to have, you know, it's going to be, tonight's going to be a good night. I got a feeling. So all that's going on in your head, and, and you're standing there. And, and to issue a sign of the covenant, we, we exchanged rings. Well, I mean, we exchanged rings. The, these were not rings. And no offense, but these are not rings bought on the side of the street by Roosevelt Road back in the day. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, these rings cost like all my life savings. And so the, th this was a sign of the commitment. You, we exchanged the rings as so as to say, uh, our love is going to outlast the platinum in which these rings have been cast. Uh, our love will be unending uh, in the same way that you cannot see a beginning or an end of these rings. Our, our love is going to endure the test of time like the diamonds in the ring will endure the test of time. And, and you stand there and you make that solemn, grave commitment. So you can imagine how I felt when uh, uh, about a year after we were married and we were in Target and this guy didn't see me in the other aisle, but he saw Kirsty in the aisle she was in and he was pushing his cart and he decided at that moment to make his move. And, and, and I'm a Christ follower and I'm a preacher and I believe in nonviolence. I'm like with Dr. King and all of that. And I turned that corner and I saw, and I just stood there for a second. I said, this, is, this cannot be what I think it is. And, and she was on the phone and he was trying to get her attention. So I did what? Yes, sir. <laughs> you should have told me that. that I slid between her and him. And I said, can I help you, bruh? No, no, no. You see, I was trying to know you wasn't. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Don't let the small frame fool you, bro. And, and, and in that moment, I thought to myself, Don't you see my life savings on her hand? That, that, that's a commitment. People make all kinds of commitments. Folk today, uh, like the firefighters did in 2013, they, when they get sworn in, to their office, they put their hand on the Bible to suggest there's gravity. There's a weight of seriousness to their commitment. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, it's not so much that you got the Bible in your hand, so much as it is that God has his hand on you. And the reason you preach, the reason you are charged in this moment to carry out your duties of preaching is because God and Christ Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And, and I can tell that did nothing to some of y'all. But what this text means is that we know people who judge the living, but we don't know nobody who judges the dead. God is so strong that when he returns, when Christ Jesus comes back, he's not only going to judge the people who are alive, but he's going to call all the folk who've been dead back to life and judge them again for the deeds done in the flesh. And Paul says to Timothy, in light of the fact that you're going to have to stand before God and give an account for what you have preached to his people, you better be ready to preach. This is what I'm trying to say to y'all. You, as much as I love you, are not my motivation for preaching. You, as much as you give, don't even pay me for preaching to you. There is another one who called me into ministry. Another one who has charged me with his word. So I show up on Sunday because I got to 
to stand before him. I stand before y'all to tell you the truth because when I stand before him, I want to be able to say, I told the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He says, Timothy, I charge you now. I charge you under the weight of this experience. You have to know that God is weighing your ministry in the balance and that preaching matters to the church and above your commitment to me you need to have a commitment to God here, here it is he says as it gets to the function of Christian preaching that the fact that you've been called is not determined by people is accompanied by the fact that you've been called to do something that has been determined by God in, in other words it's not just that you preach has been determined by God, but what you preach has been determined by God. This is a word about what the preacher ought to do. He says, first of all, preach. Preach. This word, preach, has fallen on hard times even in the church. I get invited to places and they go, what's your talk going to be about? No, no, no. I ain't coming to talk. I'm coming to preach. Say, say, no, no, no. We want your, we want your speech to be about 35 minutes. Well, I, do you want better? I ain't got no speech. I got a sermon. It, it is, it is the word of God. This, this word preach is the idea of a news reporter. I like Anderson Cooper. I do. He's my favorite journalist. Dude can dress, he's a little strange, but you know, he can dress, he's just a, a clear, clear-cut communicator. Anderson Cooper has just been charged with exaggerating the details of a recent hurricane. But you know that ain't true about Anderson. Because Anderson Cooper will show up 20 minutes after a natural disaster to show the rest of the country what's going on. It's like they got a plane on standby. There was an earthquake in Jakarta. Two hours later, Anderson Cooper's there. Hi, all of our viewers in CNN. The ground is shaking right now. 8.5 on the Richter scale. We just lost our cameraman. He's dead. We picked up somebody else to come and view this. I wish you could see this. A Anderson Cooper down at Hurricane Irma or Harvey or one of them went, went down and was walking on the side of the road in water that was ankle deep, fell down in a water that was waist deep. And, and he, he went on to talk about how his job is to bring the news to the people who can't get to the news. You ought to read them when you get a chance. He goes to places you can't go to show you what needs to be done. This is the idea of the preacher. The preacher is a herald, one who sits with the king, hears the king's message, runs into the marketplace where the people are, opens up the king's message and starts yelling to the top of his voice. This is what the king has to say. The preacher is not a soft-spoken personality who is timid and scared of the people he's going to. No, the preacher feels the urgency of the king's message and knows that if the people don't hear what the king has to say, their lives weigh in the balance. Y'all, this is what I'm trying to tell y'all. I show up every week with the king's message in my hand. 
so that you can hear what he has to say. Are y'all in here with me? To preach, to cry aloud. But what is it that I'm preaching? He, he, he doesn't say, preach the headlines from the Tribune and the Sun-Times. Do y'all hear me in here today? He doesn't say, take the latest lyrics from Jay-Z and Kanye and turn them in front of your people so that they know how culturally astute you are. No, no, no. You could go to Beyonce's concert and get that. He, he doesn't say, uh, preach your favorite animal, a donkey or an elephant, to push your political views upon people. That, that, that ain't it. He says, no, the, the action has been ordained, but the subject has been ordained too. When you stand up, preach the word. Y'all ain't in here with me today. That, that this, is, this is a challenge because people don't like hearing the word all the time. They, they want to hear stuff that's going to tickle their ears. They, they want to hear things that's going to make them feel good every time they come to church. But Paul tells Timothy, no, nah, bruh, the content for your preaching is already determined. And if you just preach the word, it'll talk about politics at some times. If you just preach the word, it'll call out systemic injustice from time to time. If you just preach the word, It'll help folk who are looking for romance from time to time. If you just preach the word, it'll tell people how to be blessed and how to handle their finances. But the problem around our nation is that we got a, too many preachers, but too few of them preaching the word. And I've decided that when I show up on Sunday morning, I'm not coming to bring no newspaper to y'all. I'm bringing you the very word of God. Somebody say, preach the book. I'm going to tell y'all that in Genesis, God created everything out of nothing. That he stepped out on nothing when the only pulpit he had was the power of his own personality. And he spoke to nothing. But when he got done speaking, the sun was in the sky. The stars were flung everywhere. And the earth was carpeted with grass. Are y'all in here with me? Tell them that in Exodus, he liberated his people apart from diplomacy with Pharaoh. That he had no army or no strategy. He sent an army of locusts and Pharaoh had to let his people go. And if you push me, I'll tell you God will let his people go again. That there ain't nothing that can hold you down that God can't get out of you. Listen, friends, tell them that in Leviticus, he made holiness possible for people who could not make themselves holy. I wish y'all heard what I said. There are times when you try to live right and you cannot live right. But if I preach the book, the Holy Spirit will show you how to live right, how to conduct yourself. Tell them that in Deuteronomy, he gave them the law a second time because he knew that they would not get it right the first time. Isn't that the kind of God we serve? He didn't told you once. He didn't told you twice. He didn't told you three times. You still ain't got it right. But he's so good that he keeps on telling you because he's the God of another chance. Come on here. Tell them about Esther. Preach the book that here was a queen who did all she could to save her people, but she didn't have a king that was worthy enough to wear the crown. And Esther, as a woman, saved the world where man would have messed it up. And women been saving the world ever since when men messed it up. Tell them that in 1 Samuel, God rejected the tall, proud king because big things little really do come in little packages. That God doesn't have to respect stature, but he can pick a small boy like David and change the world. And so God doesn't look at your outside. 
He ain't concerned about how your hair look if you got Louis Vuitton or Gucci, but God is looking at the inside because that's what matters to him. Tell them that in Job, God might let you go through some things, but he's so good that when you get done going through, he'll give you double for your trouble. Can I get a witness in this church today? Tell them that in Amos, we knew some white evangelicals, not getting mad at none of the white people here, just going with me, would sign some statement in California saying that social justice has nothing to do with the gospel. But God had on writ that one day justice would flow down like a mighty ocean, that the crooked paths would be made straight and the rough places would be made plain. You ain't got to like it, but it's in the book. Tell them that in Isaiah, God prophesied about the coming son with compassion and precision. That in, in Jeremiah, he prophesied that a hard heart would be changed to a heart of flesh. Tell them that in Matthew, he kept his word by fulfilling it. In Mark, he healed the world. In Luke, he befriended sinners. In John, he satisfied the hungry. In Acts, he started the church. In Romans, he justified the church. In Ephesians, he tore down the walls of the church. In Galatians, he fixed the broken minds of the church. In 1 Corinthians, he got the wickedness out of the church. And in Revelation, he's coming back for the church. Preach the word! When, Paul, when should I preach the word? Timothy would ask. There, there are two read two times when the preacher ought to preach. In season and out of season. <laughs> you, you know what that means, right? In season means at a convenient, opportune time. When the preacher is ready and when the people are ready. Out of season means in an inconvenient, inopportune time. When the preacher don't feel like preaching and the people don't feel like hearing the preacher. But Paul tells Timothy, if you're going to be true to what God has called you to do, you got to come and preach when you feel like it. And you got to show up and preach when you don't feel like it. I know y'all don't believe this, but there are times on Sunday morning when the preacher don't feel like preaching. Especially when he got to look at mean hateful faces at times that don't want to hear what God has to say but there's another motivation that says you got to preach when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it there, there also comes a time when, when you got to preach when the people are enjoying the preaching oh for sweet seasons like that then sometimes you're going to preach some stuff they ain't going to enjoy and you got to show up and do it be ready Timothy be on standby. It's a military term. Be ready to preach whenever the moment comes up for preaching. Now I wish, I wish that I could call the role of illustration, but I, I hear Billy Graham standing up at the 9-11 memorial service at the National Cathedral. And in that moment when the nation was mourning and they brought rabbis and imams and all kinds of other uh, religious leaders and they let Billy Graham get the mic. What they do that for? He stood up and told them, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son on national TV that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the point. You never know when tragedy is going to strike. You better have a sermon in your back pocket. You better be ready to call upon the name of the Lord and to issue his proclamation before his people. But then he goes on to say something. He goes on to say something that describes what preaching does. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Can I tell y'all something? I'm going to make a confession. You ain't got to hold it against me. I don't care if you do.
Every preacher wants to preach in a way where even the babies start shouting in church. Oh, yeah, we do. One preacher, the angels come down, and uh, the little Hicks babies in the back start shouting, Thank you, Jesus! You leave and go, man, we got them today, boy. We, was, we preached today. But preaching, first, according to this text, involves reproving. This is to say that preaching will expose stuff that's wrong in your life. It, it will convict you. And it will introduce shame upon you. You don't need to fight preaching when that happens. That, that means that sometimes you're going to leave church angry. You ain't going to leave happy. It ain't because the preacher mad at you. It's because God knows your business. And he's trying to help you, keep you from destroying yourself. Preaching will reprove you. But then preaching also will rebuke you. It'll say something to you. And it'll hurt your feelings. And rather than saying anything, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. But I thank you, Lord, anyway. Now watch this. Paul tells Timothy to do this with great patience. That word great is the, in the original language. It's the pas pas upon where it means with all, with every, with each kind of patience that there is. That the kind of preaching we do requires that the preacher not give up and be faint-hearted. I've come to see this. I haven't been pastoring for all of my life, but it's been a while now. And there are times when you show up to preach, and you show up to preach again, and you show up to preach again, and it don't seem like the church is getting what you're saying at all. Men are still living passive lives in their homes. Letting their wives lead them to church rather than them leading their wives to church. And I stand up and I preach about how God entrusted Adam with the spiritual responsibility to lead his home and it doesn't happen. And, and then there are times where the Bible hits at your finances and it tells you how to give and it's reproving you. It's rebuking you and you decide I'm going to give God's way for these next two weeks. And after them two weeks you stop doing it and, and the preacher watches as you follow and unfollow God like he's somebody on Twitter, as you come and you go. And I said to Kiersey some weeks ago, after a conversation with the member, I said, is my ministry a failure? That I'm standing up preaching every week? You ought to know better by now. You, you ought to know what I've been saying over and over and over again from the word of God. But this is what Paul says to Timothy. You don't know when God's going to bring a breakthrough. And it's your job to be patient and to keep dropping seed and to keep sowing seed and let God water it and grow it. One day, they're going to get what you're saying. He tells them to reprove with patience, to rebuke with instruction. Don't just fuss at the people. That's what he says. Instruct the people. Because a rebuke without instruction will leave somebody to go right back to what they were in. He says that good preaching ought to include good teaching. That if when the sermon is over, you ain't learned nothing or been reminded of something or being pointed to Jesus, something wrong with the sermon. Because the sermon ought to make your mind grow as your spirit grows. But then he says, exhort. Now I'm in my seat. Y'all been very patient with me. Plus, the game's about to come. We got to get out of here. This word exhort 
It's the same word Paul uses in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. I urge you, parakaleo. It, it means to come alongside and to call out. The idea is that the preacher comes alongside the people and calls out what God is saying. Listen, I don't preach from an ivory tower. I don't sit in my study to try to stay above everybody else. But I work hard in preaching to preach where you are and you need to be reminded that I am as you are. That your preacher is human too. I know, I know I hear it in the barbershop. I didn't think you preachers got tempted like everybody else. Fool. That's the cleanest way I could say it from this here station. You think I ain't got eyes like you got eyes? That I'm not a man like you're a man? No, I'm just like you are. So at the same time, the word is cutting you. It's cutting me. In fact, I got to take the medicine before I bring it to you to take it. It don't taste good, but I tell you, if you take it, it'll change your life. And I know because it's changed my life. I know it. Exhort. Because the time is coming. Here's the fate. I'm in my seat. The time is coming. Can I say it the way I feel it? The time is here. Well, people will not endure sound doctrine. Folk ain't going to want to come to church and hear what thus saith the Lord. This word sound is the word from which we get our word hygiene. You ever talk to somebody with bad hygiene? Especially bad hygiene from the mouth? And you go, whoa. Those who spew false doctrine are like those with bad hygiene. But when our hygiene is right, we can trust that something has been clean. When doctrine is preached purely, sincerely, and squarely, the church will have a pleasant aroma. Friends, if y'all don't hear me, nothing else I say as I close this sermon, hear this. There are a lot of churches who no longer preach sound doctrine. You know why? Because churches grow when you stop preaching sound doctrine. Because people want, people want to come and hear, I could live however I want to live. And God's going to be good to me. And things are going to work out. And I ain't got to worry about a thing. I'm blessed and highly favored. I can name it and claim it. I can blab it and grab it. It's yours. It's my man. If I preached that way every week, folk would show up and be busting at the scenes. If what we did were to have a party and make the music so entertaining and then the preaching just kind of massaged you and it sprinkled a little bit of Bible on you, man, folk would come and clamor because the world has itching ears. It's unusual now for a pastor to have a very long tenure of steady proclamation of the book. But I've determined if God gives me grace. That's what this here chocolate man is going to do. Stand up and preach sound doctrine. Because though the world turns away from the truth, you know this to be the case, that there are all kinds of people who don't buy into truth claims anymore. Nothing's true anymore. In post-modernity, everything is, re is relative. It, it, is, it means to me what it means to me, and it can mean to you what it means to you. Which is why the, the dumbest question, the question we stop asking at Bible classes, what does this mean to you? No, no, 
nobody care what it means to you. But because what you think ain't really what matters. What, what matters is what it says. And everything is relevant. But can I tell y'all a problem about everything being relative? If, if the stop sign at the end of the block means something to you, that it don't mean to me, and it means something else to her, that it don't mean to him, when we all get to it, we're going to have a problem because it don't mean the same thing to all of us. And what Paul is telling Timothy is the world is turning its attention from the truth, but you got to stand up and say, no, there is a truth. There is meaning in this book that what God says has authority over our lives. It says, but as they will attack truth, you learn to be resilient. I love it. I'm in my seat. He says, be sober. In verse 5, it means keep some balance in your life, Timothy. Endure hardship. Folk ain't going to love you, but stick with it anyway. Do the work of an evangelist. I could preach this if I had time. I ain't got time. Y'all look at me every Sunday because you don't know how hard preaching is. No, I don't mean just standing up here talking to you. You actually got to have something to say before you come up here and talk to people. Folk don't know what you've done all week. They don't know that you parsed word verbs, that you looked up words, that you sat there and grappled with ideas, that you diagrammed sentences, that you looked at context, that you've investigated culture, that you've read the newspaper, that you've looked at what's going on in the world, you've tried to build bridges, you've done all that while still trying to go home and feed your family and love your wife and be faithful in everything else you do. They have no idea. Then you stand up and you preach your lungs out for 35 minutes and they sit there and look at you like you the one going on a trip that ain't nobody else signed up for but Paul tells Timothy don't be no punk man do the work and preach the book preach it then he says to him and I'm in my seat I ain't got the voice to do it Rick I want to but then he says to him he says man Fulfill your ministry. I love the way Paul says this in an active verb. It's not a passive verb. He doesn't say that the ministry will bring fulfillment to you. Oh, see, sometimes people you love will leave you and that's all right. Folk you are kind to will misunderstand you, but that's okay because you're not getting fulfillment from the ministry. You're supposed to fulfill your ministry. Says, man. See to it that you get to the end and you finish your job. Oh, I love it. His name is Edward Spencer. The year is 1862. He became a local hero. He's a student at Northwestern. This is when Northwestern had the whole beachfront to themselves up near Winneka. There was a boat crash up near Winneka. And a whole lot of people went down. And Edward Spencer swam out some 60, 70 yards, tied a rope to himself. And he literally begged the people to grab the rope as he swam back to shore. And there he swam and kept on swimming. And when he dropped them off, he was exhausted. But he jumped right back in the water and went back swimming again. He begged other people, grab hold of my rope and just ride me all the way to the shore. And he kept swimming, Deacon Carl, until he had no more strength in him. And he got to the end and he collapsed. And they pulled the people off of his rope. And then he jumped back up and jumped back in the water and started swimming again. And they said, Edward, come back. You're going to hurt yourself. He said, no, I got to save these people. And when it was over, he had saved more than 17 people who could not swim. And he was left 
paralyzed for the rest of his life. He went in the water to save people. And when he got done, the last words that they recorded was him saying, did I do my best? I don't know how y'all feel, but one day I'm going to stand before God. And I'm going to have to say, God, did I do did I do my best? Did I work with what you gave me? Did I fulfill my ministry? But the good news is, regardless of how that goes, there's another one who came down and fulfilled his ministry. He didn't tie a rope to his waist. They put a cross on his back, nails in his hands and nails in his feet, and he finished the job. It is finished. He said, and our salvation was won. Glory to the Lamb of God. Y'all stand up. It's time to go. Help me, Holy Ghost. The Word of God will do the job if the church stays with the Word. I've done my best today to make the book talk. Now it's your turn to respond to the love call of Jesus Christ. Preaching is the primary assignment of the preacher, but it's also the primary need of the church. This is what gives our mission direction, and it's what gives our movement energy. Preach the word. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?